Why are we here? Again, it's a question we've been looking at for several months now, and we will continue. And uh, at this point in time, we are looking at the idea that we are here to serve. We are here for ministry, acts of service to one another in the body of Christ, and there's also ministry to be had with outside of the body of Christ. That is why we are here. Now, one major issue that gets in the way of service is apathy. Apathy. It's a huge problem. Uh, we talk about it, and few offer any answers. Uh, I heard the story once of a man who was told all the, all the problems in the world could be solved uh, if, if we just didn't have ignorance or um, apathy. And he was asked, what do you think about it? He says, I really don't know and I really don't care. That, that's kind of the heart of a whole lot of people. Uh, but some are disenchanted. Some do care. Some want to see the world change. But as we looked at earlier in this, they want somebody else to do the work. Storyteller Megan McKenna has a wonderful parable that illustrates just who a lot of folks think need to do all the work. She said there was a woman who wanted peace in the world and peace in her heart, but she was very frustrated. The world seemed to be falling apart, and she would read papers and get even more depressed. One day she decided to go shopping, and she went to a mall and just picked a store at random. When she walked in, she was very surprised to see Jesus behind the counter. And she knew it was Jesus because he looked just like he did in all those devotional cards and pictures. She, she kept wondering, and she finally worked up enough nerve to say, Are you Jesus? He said, I am. Do you work here? He said, Oh, no, no, I own this store. And uh, she, she said, Well, what do you sell here? He said, Anything. Anything? Yes, anything that you want. Tell me, what do you want? She says, I don't know. Well, Go ahead and walk through the store and take a look and see what you find. And, and whatever you decide you want, just bring up here and we'll see what we can do for you. And she agreed wholeheartedly. And she went and she went up and down the aisles and there was peace on earth. No more war, no hunger, no poverty, peace in the family, no more drugs, uh, clean air. Careful use of resources. There was just everything she could imagine. And she's writing furiously. She comes to the counter and says, did you find what you wanted? She said, oh, yes. And she gave him the very long list. And he looked through it. And then he said, no problem. Then he bent underneath the counter and came up with a bunch of packets and strewed them about the, the counter. And she said, what are those? And she says, oh, those are seeds. This is a catalog store. See, you take the seeds and you go home and you plant them. And you nurture them and you take care of them. And when they finally come to bloom, others will reap the benefit. Her reply was, oh. And then she turned and left the store without buying anything. 
See, a lot of us are waiting for God to kind of swoop in and save the day. We're wanting God to just work a ton of miracles to make everything come out right. But if we honestly look at the Word of God, though God is a work of miracles, that's not normally the way He works in this world, is it? It's quite a different story, the way He does work. But her parable struck a nerve with me. I remember a moment in my life where I was wanting to get close with God, and I kept looking for the experience that would suddenly make me into the man I was meant to be. What I was waiting for was God to zap me and take away all of the struggle. Well, folks, this parable points out a need. It points us to one of, uh, other than the prodigal son, this parable is the probably the best known in the book of Luke. And when we take a look at it, we will see that this parable is calling us to be caring enough to do something. You know the story well, and it is always a challenge for preachers or teachers to go over a passage of Scripture that everybody knows, or at least thinks they know. And so... The moment you started hearing in children's time, we're going to be looking at the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably thought, ooh, this is a good one. I can relax. I don't have to think. Well, hopefully by now you should know better than that. But you know the story. A lawyer comes to Jesus. Jesus is teaching and a lawyer steps up in the crowd. Now you got to keep in mind, in the New Testament, lawyer means one thing, a scribe an expert in the law. Uh, He is one who has copied and copied and copied till he knows the law backwards and forward. And the scripture actually lets us know that when he steps up, now most translations we'll use as the ESV does today, he was going to test Jesus, but he was setting a trap. He wanted to show up this itinerant rabbi, who was who and what was what. And so let's look at the parable. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. And I will be looking at the ASV for a very particular reason in just a moment. So I invite you to stand as we look at the Word of God together. And even though you know the story well, ask God, open my heart and open my ears to what you're saying today. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength and mind and your neighbor as yourself. Folks, I got to say, that's kind of impressive for him to pull these two together. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him up on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, that is the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go, you go and do likewise. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This man's trying to trick Jesus, trying to trap him, and he asks him the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And that's not a bad Question for a man in that day. He's thinking, what must I actually do? And Jesus surprises him. He shouldn't because this was a common practice among rabbis. You're asked a question. You answer with a question. Well, what do you think? Tell me what you say the law says. And the man answered, love God with everything you are. And folks, that's what all that love and with all your heart, your mind, soul, your spirit All that means, strength, all that means is love God with everything you are and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said, that's right. Do this and live. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying we earn our salvation. The reality is, if anyone could do what that man just said perfectly, he could walk into glory because it fulfilled the whole law. But what's the problem? Can anyone do this perfectly? No. What this man should have said, I don't know how to do that, Jesus. I don't know how to love. I need help. I need God to move in my life. But he didn't do that, did he? He said, the scripture says he wanted to justify himself. What does this mean? Well, he's asked a question he knew the answer to. Now he looks bad. So I can almost hear him, but, but that's, that's not the major question. What I really want to know is who is my neighbor? You see, in the first century, it was pretty much understood that your neighbor was the one near you. But in first century Palestine, Jewish people knew we are to love our neighbor, other Jews. Pharisees were even more particular. Love your neighbor, other Pharisees. Love the one who's like you. And then Jesus kind of does a mild rebuke. He does not answer that man's question, does he? Who is my neighbor? No, he tells a parable that is very different. In our passage, Jesus told the story of who is a loving neighbor. Who is a loving neighbor, not who is my neighbor. So he's not even going to bother. He's not even going to acknowledge that that's a question. He's turning it because he wants this man to look at his heart. And when I come to this text, 
I am reminded, with all the different things we can take away from this, what Jesus was saying, one who is loving is one who acts. And folks, for true ministry to happen, for this church to become the the church she is meant to do, actually doing real ministry to one another and even those outside, we have got to be involved. There's no other way around this. We, all of us, need to be acting on the love that we say we have. All of us need to be doing ministry. We can talk a lot about it. We can have classes on it. We can discuss what it means all day long, but essentially we eventually have to come down to the actual doing of ministry. Because frankly, in the latter half of the 20th century, going into the 21st century, a whole lot of folks have talked a lot about ministry and have done nothing. So what is it going to take for you, for me, for us to really be involved, to really become involved in ministry, well, let's look at some requirements that grow out of this text. And here with your heart, both ears and your heart, the first requirement shows up immediately with the Samaritan. Involved ministry requires hearts of compassion. Involved ministry, for us to actually act, for us to actually do ministry, our hearts need to be filled with compassion. And when you look at this story, the parable is not nearly as shocking to us as it would have been Jesus' audience. So I'll try to shake that up a little bit for us as we look at it. The parable looked at the reactions of three different people when they saw a real need. Three characters other than the man who has been beaten, stripped, and left for dead, only three other people are involved. First of all, there's a priest. And a priest was a descendant of Aaron whose position included being involved in the sacrifices of Israel, the maintenance of the temple, purification laws. Folks, in the minds of most of the people there, he would have been a hero. There's also a Levite, a descendant of... Levi, but not of Aaron. So he could not actually be a priest. He could actually do acts of sacrifices, but he assisted the priest. When you heard the term priest and Levites in first century Palestine, you would understand those are our leaders. The king that is sitting on the throne is a Roman puppet. The people who are really going to lead us into what we need to be are these folks who know God and do the work of God, they are our leaders. And the people in that crowd would have expected when the priest shows up, he fails, the Levite shows up, they're expecting these men of God to do something, to show their hearts for God and their people, but they didn't. And here comes the fun part. Through the ages, and I will admit wholeheartedly, I've been involved in this. Uh, it's usually best to let a parable stand on its own without trying to dissect. There's secret meanings in everything. But over the course of time, you pick up 10 commentaries, 
you're probably going to find at least seven or eight different reasons why the priest and the Levite don't help. One of the most common is these were religious men, and if they couldn't take the chance, they see him, and if he's dead and they touch him, they're ceremonial and clean. You can scratch that off the list immediately. How do I know this? They were going down from Jerusalem. They've already finished their term of office in the temple. They're through. They don't have to worry about that. Some people have said, well, they were probably afraid of their lives. If they went to help him, the robbers would still be hiding and get them. And I, I went through that because I, I was intrigued by why wouldn't they help? And I wanted to understand. And I studied and tried to figure out. And it was pointed out to me uh, one time ago by, uh, by several as I continued trying to figure this out. Luke doesn't say anything about why they didn't do it, does he? He just says they saw him and crossed the other side. Why doesn't he let us know what's in their mind? Because they're fictional characters. It's pointless. It doesn't advance the story at all. In fact, one writer went so far to say the whole point of the story is that the priest and the Levite have to be without excuse. The parable doesn't make sense unless these so-called godly men simply don't care and walk away. And then we have the Samaritan. And the minute Jesus mentioned Samaritan, I don't know that there would have been boos and hisses. That's probably not a first century thing. But everybody knew, oh, that guy's in real trouble now. The robbers left him half dead. He's going to take care of the rest. You see, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. And they would have expected him to make matters worse, but he didn't. This hated Samaritan has pity on this guy. He has compassion. And the idea that he has compassion quite literally means his heart went out to him. He saw him. And he didn't just Pity in the sense, oh, I feel sorry for you. A lot of times people will have pity and shake their head and click their tongues. That's so, that, man, that's awful. He does something. He physically goes to the man and he applies first aid. Oil and wine commonly used for first aid with wounds. He bound up the man's wounds. Once he applied the treatment, he bound him up so nothing else would happen. He puts him on his animal, which means he would have to walk the rest of the way. Then he takes him to an inn where we're told he took care of him. He looked after the man. He didn't drop him off of the land and leave. He took care of him. And the, I, the phrase took care of him meant to take care with a diligent concern, to provide whatever is needed. He wasn't content to just get him to safety and go on for a period of time. He took care of him personally, but then it's time for him to go, and he gives money to the innkeeper. This should take care of the cost, but when I come back through on my way back, if there's any extra charge, I'll take care of it. Now, what we see here is common in Luke's Gospels. Luke loved to record the things that show what are called reversals of fortune when the person who's down and out is exalted. 
Mary's song, the Magnificat, when she thanks God that a humble handmaid of the Lord is going to give birth to the, to the Messiah. Uh, the equivalent of the Beatitudes in Luke's are the blessings and woes. Uh, blessing, blessed are the, the poor, and he doesn't even say the poor in spirit, because they're going to be exalted. The idea, they had nothing, and God's going to take care of them. And then, in the story, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, a poor man and a rich man die the same day and both have very different destinations. And the reversal is here. The heroes, the people who should have done something, the people everyone was conditioned to have helped the man, failed. Epic fail. And the villain, the Samaritan, shows love. Folks, I look at this story, and I look at the setup, and I have a a question. Where does compassion come from? Where does compassion come from? Now, some argue that it's nurture. Bill fixes. Maybe you grew up in a home where people loved each other, took care of each other, showed compassion and empathy. I grew up with a mom that describes completely. Maybe you grew up in a neighborhood where neighbors actually cared for each other, loved each other, took care of each other. You worked and played together, and you grew up in a wholesome area of life. Others will argue that it's probably nurture. There are just some people who seem to be innately kind. They have the kind of personality, the heart, that people who are hurting are drawn to. But what happens? What happens when you come to a situation that doesn't seem to be rationally explained? An article entitled A Loving Witness in the Muslim World talks about in the days leading up to 9-11 when the fighting in Afghanistan between local groups and the Taliban uh, resulted in thousands of refugees pouring down into Pakistan. There they were squashed into tents and mud hovels in refugee camps in intense heat and poor sanitation. J. Dudley Woodbury and his wife, Roberta, were working in the refugee camps at the time, and Woodbury described what went on. Conditions at one camp were harsher than at the others, so Roberta and her class took school supplies to the students so that they had more than just blank slates with chalk. Another group of eight workers imported thousands of sandals for the children who ran around with bare feet on rough parched ground. But that wasn't enough. They decided to do for these kids what Jesus had done. They washed their feet. Woodbury says, my daughter-in-law was part of that team. 
For a week they washed every foot with antibacterial soap, anointed with oil, and silently prayed for the child. Then they gave each of them new sandals, a quilt and a shawl, plus a small bag of flour for every family. And at first the sores, the pus, pink eye, and dirt were revolting. But he says, then our daughter-in-law felt a deep love. She silently prayed, dear father, this little girl looks like she does not have anyone to care for her. Let my touch feel to her as if you are touching her. May she remember how you touched her this day. May she seek after you hereafter. Thank you. For those who seek you will find you. And as their feet were washed and treated, a lot of these kids whose lives have been thrown into absolute chaos would look up and shyly smile. Woodbury says, sometime later, a teacher in one of the tents used for a refugee school asked for a refugee school, asked her class, who are the best Muslims? The girl raised her hand and replied, the kafirs. A term meaning unbelievers that is often used by Muslims for Christians. After the teacher recovered from the shock of that answer, said, asked why. And the young girl said this. The Muslim fighters killed my father, but the kafirs washed my feet. An act of love. An act of compassion no one would expect. A group of Christians from the West caring about the torn feet of little Muslim children. And that's the key, isn't it? Why did they care? The same reason we can have compassion. We have been touched by the compassion of Jesus Christ, by the compassion of the God of all comfort. And if we understand that, really understand that, then there is the ability within us as children of the living God to let the compassion of God flow out of us and touch other people. So friends, we need to learn to turn our hearts over to our Lord. We need to learn to ask God, help us. Help us love that neighbor who smells funny. Help us love that neighbor who hates everything we stand for. Help us love that person who is hurting and desperately needs your touch. That person I am not inclined to help. Father, give me compassion. Take the love that you have for me and help me to release it to other people. And folks, if we can do that, If we can honestly seek God to help us, change us, give us your compassion, then the next requirement is not as hard as it sounds. Involved ministry requires a willingness to help whoever. Whoever God sends our way. Just whoever. Now grab hold of this. Because in the story, the Samaritan showed no reluctance to help a helpless Jewish man. Now, the hatred was very strong among Jews and Samaritans. 
In Jesus' day, it had come to the point where Jews just considered Samaritans maybe even worse than Gentiles. It was part racial. The Samaritans were the results of the inbreeding of Jewish refugees still left in Israel after Assyria took them, and Gentiles. Now, the word of God allowed a Jew to marry a Gentile if the Gentile would convert. They didn't bother with that. So the Jews of Jesus, they saw them as an interracial mix-up. It should never have happened. But it was also religious because the Samaritans rejected all of the books of the Bible except the first five. The five books of Moses were all that were legitimately scripture. And then to add to that, they said, and our teaching tells us that Mount Gerizim was where God wanted sacrifice to take place, not Jerusalem. So the Jewish people not only saw them as interracial, they also saw them as heretics, and they hated them. And folks, pretty much the feeling was mutual. So the man who found himself going into a ditch to help somebody is a part of a people who have a lot of emotional and mental baggage toward the Jewish folks. That's why he would have been the villain. But as he discovers the man is a Jew, he just helps. And Jesus does not pick Sure, any wavering, he sees the man and goes. Now, I need to make this clear. We are told the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritans saw this man. Now, there are words, there are verbs in the New Testament for see that means you take a casual glance or you really stare at something. The same verb is used for priest, Levite, and Samaritan. They all saw him. They all understood what had happened. But only the Samaritan says, I need to help him. Without any hesitation, I need to help him. And here's where it gets sticky for us. Why must we be open to helping whoever with acts of compassion? Why can't I just take the easy route? My neighbor is the one near me who's like me. Because the word of God forbids it. I look at God. And folks, over and over in God, we see something about God. Yes, he picked out Israel. He picked out Abraham to bring the the people who were known as Israel. And he chose them. And for a lot of people, that sounds like God picked favorites. It did to the people of Israel. We're the chosen and you're not. But when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2, he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Israel was meant to bless the whole world as a representative of what God would do for his people. In the book of Acts, when Peter's having to struggle, do I go to a a Gentile's house to preach? And when he's trying to help people understand why, In chapter 10, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God shows no partiality. And Paul can't get it more succinct. Romans chapter 2, 11, God shows no impartiality. 
And then James, in his letter, he's using the image of a rich and poor man and come into your church. How are you going to treat them? Listen to what James says. James 2.9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So if I pick the neighbor I like and I help them, and I turn my back on the one who grates every nerve I have, I'm not showing the love of the Lord. Jesus set the bar. And I know of no passage of Scripture that says it better Write this down on your notes and be sure you take a look at it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 46, 47. In responding, Jesus is talking about loving your enemies. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You're called to something better. We are not free to say, I love you, but I won't love you. And the truth is, we struggle with this. We need God's help to turn us away from selective service. No, I'm not saying God will help us dodge the draft. I realize that that phrase has a completely different meaning that I want. I want you to understand. Because by the very nature of who we are as human beings, we want to help the people we love naturally, don't we? We want to help the people who are like us. We want to help the people that make it easy to love. And so if we're not careful, we will selectively choose to whom we will minister. I don't like the looks of them. I, I, I just, I don't care about them. I, let me go over here and minister. But Jesus calls us to rise above that. Whomever and whatever he brings into our way, we need to focus our hearts on serving. We need God to turn us. And so we pray. Lord, teach me to love the unlovely. Teach me to love the people who are different. The people who may see me as an enemy. Help me love them. Help me reach out to them. Help me care about them. And when I can, help me, God, to do something. To do something. That shows a change of heart. And folks, our last requirement is huge. Involved ministry requires giving hearts. Giving hearts. Now, in the Samaritan's case, his compassion had great cost. Folks, he went out of pocket in Jesus' story. 
when he pours oil and wine on the Samaritan, I don't think he had a, on the Jewish man, I don't think he had a special first aid kit in his pack. Oil and wine would have been part of his, his provisions for his own meals. He was giving up his provision for this man. When we're told he bound him with bandages, folks, again, I don't think he had a bunch of neatly cut bandages in his pack. The implication is he tore his own clothes to make bandages for this man. And then he pays the innkeeper two denarii. A denarius was a Roman coin. Um, It could be copper or silver, most frequently silver. And it was equivalent to a day's wage for a working laborer. And he gets two to the innkeeper. Now, there's a lot of debate about how much that is, and we can't try to, we're not going to get a real denarii to dollar match here. It's too difficult. But a common understanding across the board is that these two denarii would have given this man possibly as much as two months room and board. But the point was it was a significant enough amount he would have had time to heal. But then, even above that, and if you spend more when I'm on my way back, I'll take care of that too. All for a complete stranger. And this doesn't shock us because we know the story. This doesn't shock us because we don't have baggage for the hatred of a Samaritan. The Lord picked the absolute worst hero he could have found for this story. And when he tells the story, the hearers can't believe their ears. How can that man help that man? In our modern culture, Imagine a young African-American walking down the streets of Biloxi late one night and there lying in the ditch is a skinhead. His body tatted up with signs like swastikas and hate, hate statements and Signs all over him, a swastika on his T-shirt, and he's bruised and bleeding. This is a young African man who has watched friends being hurt by such a person, has dealt with all of the problems that he faces, and he stops. And instead of kicking him, instead of spitting on him, he binds his wounds. He calls for help. And he sticks around until the help comes. You might understand that a little bit more. And any person 
who has ever raised a hand saluting the Nazi salute and saying people of color are less than human, hearing that story would be shocked. Jesus picks the one man nobody in the crowd believed could care. And he is extravagant in his help. Again, another question. What price will we be willing to pay to do real ministry? What price will we be willing to pay? Now, in all honesty, I am fully aware, I am without any illusion, we are not a people of immense wealth here at Bay Vista Baptist Church. We do not have $10 million in the bank. We don't have a million. Just start edging it down. I realize that for most of our members, monetary funds are limited. Having said that, there is still ministry we can do. And the cost will be something beyond money. But will we pay that? We have gifts that God has given us through his Holy Spirit. And folks, understand this. I'm going to say this. I've said it before, and you may think I'm absolutely crazy for saying it now at this moment in time. I truly believe that whatever God has for Bay Vista to do, he will supply the gifts and talents needed to get it done. The problem is, many sit on their gifts. Many aren't willing to pay the price. God will supply this church to get done what he wants us to do. We have the ability to show unexpected love to those who are hurting. We come to church. There's a homeless man sitting out in our parking lot somewhere. Will we treat that person with respect? Will we treat them with dignity? Or will we, as harshly as we possibly can, make it clear you're not wanted here? Loving a young woman who has followed the wisdom of this world and has terminated the life that is within her. And all of a sudden, things no one warned her about are happening. She's experiencing postpartum depression and doesn't know why she's so blue and she doesn't have a baby to hold and help her through it. And in her life, most of the people who wear the name Christian have vilified her. They have demonized her. And now she has come to a place thinking, Not even God himself can forgive me. But what if she finds a a group of people who are not going to excuse what she has done, but will let her know that God is a God of grace and mercy, and he can forgive you, and so can we. We love you and are praying for you. 
being willing to sit with a family in a time of mourning. You're not there for philosophical discussions about what happens after death. You're there to love them, to weep with them. We have in this church different ages now. Now, we are leaning, obviously, toward one end of the age realm more than the other. It's not hard to see that. But folks, something amazing can happen here. We have the experience and wisdom of age. And if we cared enough to connect with some of the young people and the children in this congregation, we might be able to give them some insight into life and to help them understand. And I thank God that we have people who are willing to speak into the life of young people. But young people, when I'm at that age, well, I'm starting to call almost anybody kid, so. Um, some of you have an energy and an excitement. I see in a few of you a fervor to serve the Lord that can speak to old geezers like me. As I see people who are excited about serving the Lord, I don't want to be part of the bucket brigade. I don't want to be the part that says, oh, they'll get over it. They'll settle down. No, I want you to challenge me, to remind me of the fire that burns within us if we just open our hearts. When we start connecting beyond the social niceties of a Sunday morning worship, but we find ways of getting into and speaking into each other's lives, we can do some amazing things. It's very easy for you and I to see all the things we don't have at Bay Vista. We need to open our eyes to what we do have. And be willing to let God move. Do we care enough? Do we really care enough? Every one of you, because every one of you, if you know Christ, you are a minister. You are called to serve. Do we care enough to use what God has given me to serve? Essentially, we need to ask God to help us be ready to count the cost of ministry. Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus constantly reminds, you need to count the cost. If you want to follow me, if you want to be a disciple, you need to understand what that means. The folks, we're not always willing to count the cost. So we may need to begin by asking God, Lord, will you change my heart so that I will understand that holding back from you what you have given me, holding back from the people who need my service, from the things you've given me is sin, it's wrong, and I need to repent. Help me to see that, God. When I say, let's pray that God helps us count the cost, what I'm really saying, I'm asking for us to pray to God to do in a work in our lives so that we will be caring enough to do something. The Bible college professor, Johanna Catanacho, pastor of a small church in the Israeli city of Jerusalem, 
He is a Palestinian living in Israel and a Christian to boot. So he faces a lot of different kinds of persecution. One of the more dangerous forms of harassment comes from the Israeli soldiers who patrol the city looking for potential terrorists. These soldiers routinely impose spontaneous curfews on Palestinians and even have the legal right to shoot at a Palestinian if he or she does not respond quickly enough to their summons. And I understand there's a lot of fear. Christ's command in the Sermon on the Mount was to love your enemies, and that seemed impossible for Johanna. And there it was, unambiguous and unchanging. He said, for me, love was an active and countercultural decision because I was living in a culture that promoted hatred of the other. And not only did the context promote it, but the circumstances fed it on a daily basis, the newspapers, television, media, neighbors, everything. One of the markers of the Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs is alienating the other. To break that marker, I must have some other worldview. He said, first he tried and failed in his attempt to feel love. Instead, the Israeli soldiers random daily checks of Palestinian identifications cards, sometimes stopping them for hours. It fed Johanna's fear and anger. And he had confessed his inability to God to love. And it's at that point something significant was realized. The radical love of Jesus, and I need you to hear what Johanna can teach us. The radical love of Christ is not an emotion, but a decision. He decided to show love, however reluctantly. And he decided to do so by sharing the gospel message with the soldiers on the street. With new resolution, Johanna began to carry copies of a flyer with him, written in Hebrew and English, with a quotation from Isaiah 53 and the words, Real Love printed across the top. Every time a soldier stopped him, he handed him both his ID card and the flyer. Because the quote came from the Hebrew scriptures, the soldier usually asked him about it before letting him go. After several months of this, Johanna suddenly noticed his feelings toward the soldiers had changed. I was surprised, you know. It was a process, but I didn't pay attention to that process. My old feelings weren't there anymore. I would pass in the same street, see the same soldiers before, but now I find myself praying, Lord, <clears throat> let them stop me so that I can share with them the love of Christ. There's work to be done, ministry to be moved, and we need to act. So I need you to remember, loving involve, ministry involves the hearts of compassion. Lord, release your love through me. Involved ministry requires willingness to help whoever God sends our way. Involved ministry requires giving hearts. Whatever the price is you have for me, Lord, make me willing to be able to do what I need to do. And so today, I believe that we need to ask God to give us the kind of heart that leads to active, involved ministry. We need to ask God to move us from talking about ministry to actually doing ministry. So today, I encourage you, ask God to help you become the kind of person who acts when real need is seen. Become the kind of person willing to go into the ditch to help 
to borrow from James. Today, let us become doers of the work and not hearers only.